The Evolution of Modesty, Part 4 of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume 1, by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Evolution of Modesty, Part 4. We have seen that the factors of modesty are numerous. To attempt to explain modesty by dismissing it as merely an example of psychic paralysis, of staying, is to elude the problem by the statement of what is little more than a truism. Modesty is a complexus of emotions, with their concomitant ideas which we must unravel to comprehend. We have found among the factors of modesty, one, the primitive animal gesture of sexual refusal on the part of the female, when she is not at that moment of her generative life at which she desires the male's advances. Two, the fear of arousing disgust, a fear primarily due to the close proximity of the sexual centre to the points of exit of those excretions which are useless and unpleasant, even in many cases to animals. 3. The fear of the magic influence of sexual phenomena, and the ceremonial and ritual practices primarily based on this fear, and ultimately passing into simple rules of decorum, which are signs and guardians of modesty. 4. The development of ornament and clothing, concomitantly fostering alike the modesty which represses male sexual desire and the coquetry which seeks to allure it. 5. The conception of women as property, imparting a new and powerful sanction to an emotion already based on more natural and primitive facts. It must always be remembered that these factors do not usually occur separately. Very often they are all of them implied in a single impulse of modesty. We unravel the cord in order to investigate its construction, but in real life the strands are more or less indistinguishably twisted together. It may still be asked finally whether on the whole modesty really becomes a more prominent emotion as civilization advances. I do not think this position can be maintained. It is a great mistake, as we have seen, to suppose that in becoming extended modesty also becomes intensified. On the contrary, this very extension is a sign of weakness. Among savages, modesty is far more radical and invincible than among the civilized. Of the Oricanian women of Chile, Trutler has remarked that they are distinctly more modest than the Christian white population, and such observations might be indefinitely extended. It is, as we have already noted, in a new and crude civilization, eager to mark its separation from a barbarism, it has yet scarcely escaped, that we find an extravagant and fantastic anxiety to extend the limits of modesty in life and art and literature. In older and more mature civilizations, in classical antiquity, in old Japan, in France, modesty, while still a very real influence, becomes a much less predominant and all-pervading influence. In life it becomes subservient to human use, in art to beauty, in literature to expression. Among ourselves we may note that modesty is a much more invincible motive among the lower social classes than among the more cultivated classes. This is so even when we should expect the influence of occupation to induce familiarity. Thus I have been told of a ballet girl who thinks it immodest to bathe in the fashion customary at the seaside and cannot make up her mind to do so, but she appears on the stage every night in tights as a matter of course while Fanny Kemble, in her reminiscences, tells of an actress accustomed to appear in tights, 
who died a martyr to modesty, rather than allow a surgeon to see her inflamed knee. Modesty is, indeed, a part of self-respect, but in the fully developed human being, self-respect itself holds in check any excessive modesty. We must remember, moreover, that there are more definite grounds for the subordination of modesty with the development of civilization. We have seen that the factors of modesty are many, and that most of them are based on emotions which make little urgent appeal save to races in a savage or barbarous condition. Thus disgust, as Richet has truly pointed out, necessarily decreases as knowledge increases. As we analyze and understand our experiences better, so they cause us less disgust. A rotten egg is disgusting, but the chemist feels no disgust toward sulfuretted hydrogen. While a solution of propylamin does not produce the disgusting impression of that human physical uncleanliness of which it is an odorous constituent, as disgust becomes analyzed and as self-respect tends to increased physical purity, so the factor of disgust in modesty is minimized. The factor of ceremonial uncleanness, again, which plays so urgent a part in modesty at certain stages of culture, is today without influence except in so far as it survives in etiquette. In the same way, the social-economic factor of modesty, based on the conception of women as property, belongs to a stage of human development which is wholly alien to an advanced civilization. Even the most fundamental impulse of all, the gesture of sexual refusal, is normally only imperative among animals and savages. Thus civilization tends to subordinate, if not to minimize, modesty, to render it a grace of life rather than a fundamental social law of life. But an essential grace of life it still remains, and whatever delicate variations it may assume, we can scarcely conceive of its disappearance. In the art of love, however, it is more than a grace. It must always be fundamental. Modesty is not indeed the last word of love, but it is the necessary foundation for all love's most exquisite audacities. The foundation which alone gives worth and sweetness to what Saint-Encore calls its delicious impudence. Without modesty we could not have, nor rightly value at its true worth, that bold and pure candor, which is at once the final revelation of love and the seal of its sincerity. Even Hohen Emser, who argues that for the perfect man there could be no shame, because shame rests on an inner conflict in one's own personality, and the perfect man knows no inner conflict, believes that since humanity is imperfect, modesty possesses a high and indeed symptomatic value, for its presence shows that according to the measure of a man's ideal personality, his valuations are established. Dugas goes further and asserts that the ideals of modesty develop with human development, and forever take on new and finer forms. There is, he declares, a very close relationship between naturalness, or sincerity, and modesty, for in love naturalness is the ideal attained, and modesty is only the fear of coming short of that ideal. Naturalness is the sign and the test of perfect love. It is the sign of it, for when love can show itself natural and true, one may conclude that it is purified of its unavowable imperfections or defects, of its alloy of wretched and petty passions, its grossness, its chimerical notions, that it has become strong and healthy and vigorous. It is the ordeal of it, for to show itself natural, to be always true, without shrinking, it must have all the lovable qualities, and have them without seeking as a second nature. What we call natural is indeed really acquired. It is the gift of a physical and moral evolution, 
which it is precisely the object of modesty to keep. Modesty is the feeling of the true, that is to say, of the healthy and love. It long exists as a vision, not yet attained, vague yet sufficiently clear for all that deviates from it to be repelled as offensive and painful. At first, a remote and seemingly inaccessible ideal, as it comes nearer, it grows human and individual, and emerges from the region of dream, ceasing not to be loved as ideal, even when it is possessed as real. At first sight, it seems paradoxical to define modesty as an aspiration towards truth and love. It seems, on the contrary, to be an altogether factitious feeling. But to simplify the problem, we have to suppose modesty, reduced to its normal functions, disengaged from its superstitions, its variegated customs and prejudices, the true modesty of simple and healthy natures, as far removed from prudery as from immodesty. And what we term the natural, or the true, in love, is the singular mingling of two forms of imaginations, wrongly supposed to be incompatible, ideal aspiration and the sense for the realities of life. Thus defined modesty not only repudiates that cold and dissolving criticism which deprives love of all poetry and prepares the way for a brutal realism, it also excludes that light and detached imagination which floats above love, the mere idealism of heroic sentiments, which cherishes poetic illusions and passes without seeing it the love that is real and alive. True modesty implies a love not addressed to the heroes of vain romances, but to living people with their feet on the earth. But on the other hand, modesty is the respect of love. If it is not shocked by its physical necessities, if it accepts physiological and psychological conditions, it also maintains the ideal of those moral proprieties outside of which, for all of us, love cannot be enjoyed. When love is really felt, and not vainly imagined, modesty is the requirement of an ideal of dignity, conceived as the very condition of that love. Separate modesty from love, that is, from love which is not floating in the air, but crystallized around a real person, and its psychological reality, its poignant and tragic character disappears. Dugas, La Poudre, Revue Philosophique, November 1903 So conceived, modesty becomes a virtue, almost identical with the Roman modestia. End of the Evolution of Modesty, Part 4